And as always, I'm Steve. I'm Mark. And I'm Andrew. And joining us today, we have Craig from Half a World Away and Down Under. This is something else I think is important to talk about when you're talking about plot hooks is, again, what type of game are you running? If you're running a game where total player kills or TPKs are possible, do you have a mechanism by which you keep playing? Right. So if rather than, okay, everyone, let's go look for the key. If that had been a combat encounter and in round four, all of your player, all of your characters are down. What do we just do? We go home. Do I say thank you very much? Do you have a mechanism to continue playing? And one of the little hooks that I'll have is there are other adventuring parties around. And in particular, all of your alt characters, which we also made in Session Zero, are a little adventuring party that if you guys go north, they go south. But you meet up again in the tavern. So that if one of your players leaves, gets killed, whatever, your alt comes to the party and says, Hey guys, I, I hear you're down a person. And you know their name. You know what they do. You know they're capable. You know they have similar experiences to yours. And you can keep playing. Interesting. I to go with what you know you were saying about you know working with the people and and there's there's this thread that keeps coming up and it comes up in Gary Gygax's old stuff at the beginning of Dungeons and Dragons and it comes up when I hear other GMs that I think oh I'd like to play in their game uh Clay in this OVA book has a section that says give everyone their time to shine instead um, instead of, you know, letting people get bored or not taking care of your players, it says, take advantage of all the PC's attributes and involve each of them in the story. Even a character with no apparent skills to contribute can prove useful given the right situation. An immature kid among a group of powerful martial artists may seem useless. That is until the party needs someone small enough to fit through a narrow passageway. And... I, I like the fact that all of you, you know, talk about letting people have, I'm going to throw this word out, it's agency, but people having, you know, a real purpose, you know, is, is that purpose just that they want to play? Is it that they're on a mission? Is Whatever it is, but the person and their character having the agency to participate in some way that doesn't just make you feel like to go back to magic, like you're playing Mark. So you, you don't know this, but Mark is really good at magic. And uh, I know that if I play him a certain way, that I've just, I'm, I'm, I'm just there. I'm there. And it's, the enjoyment for me personally is because I get to play with someone that I like and I like to see how they play. But if you're a starting player and you're playing against somebody who is just worlds better than you and all they do is crush you over and over without giving you any advice or anything like that, it just kills your spirit. So what do you mean against in a D&D context? He was talking about the game Magic the Gathering. Oh, I thought you meant magic in terms of spellcasting within D&D. &D. 
Oh, yeah, no, in, sorry. Sorry for the non sequitur there. I just, uh, since you mentioned magic earlier, I had it on my mind uh, because of how so many people feel who end up playing that game as as a newbie who wants to do well, who wants to participate, who wants to play. And if you're not playing with someone who wants to help you grow and have you have your moment, it just kills your spirit and you don't want to play the game. I think I think agency is why people like playing D&D. Like that's that's part of the deal that you think you're signing up for as a player. You say, I'm going to have some agency here. My character and I am going to do things and I'm going to make choices and those are going to matter. And if that isn't the case, then your GM is robbing you of the experience of being a player. So that is in some ways, the primary responsibility of the GM to be sure that people do have agency. And do have a good time. And, and Andrew has had a, an interesting time with trying to manage, I think, agency within uh, the childhood group. Because we're talking about people who are used to a certain kind of play. And Andrew's had to be very active it, from my perspective, watching him and them specifically, because I, I, I have taken a very receded role within the party, um, that, you know, like Mark said, it's an art, um, but also at the same time, it's, uh, it's, it's a struggle as well as a DM to figure out how to get your players you know, so that they're carried away in the story that both of you were making. I mean, how do you feel about that, Andrew? If you have a monk in the party, <laughs> it's a lost cause. <sighs> I like that monk is becoming what a lot of people thought, you know, a bard used to be. Just like you're playing a monk, really? All right, whatever. Um, I don't know if that's. Oh, Craig's Craig's making a face. I, I don't know. I like monks. <laughs> I assume this is an inside joke of some sort. Next, Andrew, start calling me a paladin or something. something our, like our our monk is always uh, our our monk is a a paper tiger. He's a he struggles. He struggles to find his place in the world. Right. I guess is the well. He's been. And it's not the player by any means. It's the char the the character seems to be struggling to find a niche where you know this is where I shine. Do you think monks are underpowered in five e? And that may be part of the problem. I've not played a monk, so All right. But this is this is also a chance as a plot hook that you have this monk that's underpowered or that isn't as effective as as they want, and they have to go on this quest of personal enlightenment in order to get better. And as a DM, I can throw you a manual of increasing your wisdom to make you a little bit better in combat. I can give you a magic item, not to you specifically, but give the party a magic item, which is best for the monk. There are a lot of tricks at your disposal that if someone had a bad roll of the dice when they created their character, that you can buttress it somehow. And if you're in a party where there is one person who just dominates 
To be honest, find a new party. <laughs> Some people are incorrigible. That is true. I don't know that it's uh, that he's underpowered. We actually addressed that early on. There is just something about the, I don't know, perhaps it's the uh, strategies and the tactics that the party uses when they're engaged. I mean, it's uh, it just struggles to, to fit. In, in my opinion, because I played... I played a druid monk uh, for a few sessions uh, in another game that got up to about ninth level, uh, two levels of monk, I believe, seven of druid. And I found the combination fantastic, fantastic, because the monkly abilities with the druid, it, it was just wonderful. And I've watched him struggle playing this monk. And... I don't know how I would handle a pure monk class, but in this particular situation, just to kind of go off the rails for a second, in this particular situation, this he was trying something new and he wanted to try a new character and he gave it a shot, but he hasn't played a monk to what I think is, is to the monk's abilities. He's been playing it more like a frontline barbarian and that is not... That is not the – a monk is finesse. A monk is a different kind of combat and a different kind of thinking. And he's been playing him because he's not too bright in a totally different way. Um, is he – The character's right, not bright, not the player. Right. Yes. Let me make that clear. <laughs> the character <laughs> – is Does he, it really sound like I was saying Jimmy was dumb? Is that what it sounded like? I assumed you were referring to the player. <laughs> you did no. You just said you just said because he's not too bright. Oh. He's playing it oh, like a barbarian. Oh, <laughs> no. It's yeah. Thank you. Uh, where do I, I man? You now do you I'm, not like running in, hitting somebody, and getting out because that's like the monk's thing. No, he's running in and flailing inadequately, and, and he's been rolling poorly anyway, but he's flurrying and then staying put and flurrying and basically getting beat down. Um, yeah. No, I, no offense to anybody, but, but I think it's – you're going to be hurting for certain if, if you play a month that way. It's true. I, I I think maybe he's he's thinking a little more Steven Seagal uh, 80s uh, movies or a Chow Yun-Fat or something like that where he is in the action and he's able to bob and weave and, you know, do his monkly things and be okay rather than, you know, the way I think I would assume a monk would fight nowadays um, with more of an in and an out and uh, if he can't use, you know, your weight against you, he's going to retreat. He's going to back up. He's going to look for another vantage point. Um, and, and Well, without getting too far into yes. the tactical rabbit hole and yes. get off our topic, um, the key advantage for a monk is mobility. And the player is not using mobility to his advantage. I mean, that's the 
you know, he, he can disengage with a key point. He can, his movement is a, a 45, I guess, and with a dash, he can do a 90. And he's moving in and standing in the middle of the combat and not moving. He's not taking advantage of battlefield mobility, but for, for certain. So moving back, there's a plot hook that your sensei has contacted you. I'm serious. Your sensei has contacted you for additional training and will spar with you and will teach you these tricks of moving in, hitting, and backing up. Will teach you of moving in, hitting, seeing if stunning strike sticks. If it does, stay in and wail because he's not going to hit you back. And it gives now the party a quest to go to the monastery high in the mountains and face whatever things await them. But if you're going to do that, and this is kind of tying into my point at the beginning as well as something Mark said, that now you have a personal quest for one of your characters. Going back to, to what I was doing with people looking at different places for the key, but in the monastery, you should have something for all the other characters waiting for them. So while they may be doing this for the monk, once they get there, everyone gets something. It's a good idea. I like that. I believe he's coming back next week as a wizard. <laughs> he's he's given up. And no, we we didn't. It's not it's not as oh, if we've okay. killed off the monk. We're he's he's taking oh, a sabbatical okay. for a while. Maybe it is during this uh, sabbatical the the monk will learn some new techniques, get some one on one training, uh, have some solo adventures, maybe. And that's. But you can do the same with the wizard. Right. If only I had better spells in my spell book. Well, the High Academy has made a call for wizards, and in exchange, they'll let you refresh your spells in the spell book. They'll give you a new spell book. Right? There's so many ways that you can do this for any class. And that's part of the, the plot hook is your master calls. And you can even make it a little bit of not quite PvP, but whether you want to do this in game or is downtime, that everyone's master calls. And do you negotiate, well, okay, we'll go see yours first, then yours, then yours, and we promise to see everyone's master, or is it, no, I want to see it now. Okay, downtime, you all spend a month going home to see your masters. Huh. So I think the thing that we haven't addressed here is, so for a bag of plot hooks, if you were going to construct the one of these, what do you put in your bag? How do you run that? And honestly, I don't know because I don't have a bag of plot hooks. But that is the, uh, I suppose, the theme of the episode. So I didn't know if any of you had ideas of how you would use that or incorporate that into your game. So, yeah, this is how I was introduced is uh, I'm in a game with Andrew and our colleague was on. A couple weeks ago, Chris, talking about Fantasy Grounds. Yes. And after the session, he had asked, hey, does anyone have any advice? And I spoke to him. And I mentioned having a bag of plot hooks or a bag of tricks so that when your characters start to go off rail, that you have a way to either discourage them or let them. In particular, the party had been captured. And when the party gets captured, they always try to escape. One way to... One way to, to handle that is to say, okay, you guys are beaten up and you're drugged and you're kept unconscious and then boom, you're in the jail cell getting ready to be sent into the arena and I've taken away all of your agency. Now I don't like that. Another, a, a kind of more passive aggressive is 
there was one character that kept trying to escape. And there comes a point where you're like, okay, you get away. Congratulations. I have no idea what happens to your character now, but everyone else who's still captured, I'm going to keep going with them. And you are running through the woods. Thank you very much for coming. See you next week. Damn. And then what happens normally is they're like, can I get captured again? Another plot hook is, you know, the characters are going to try to escape. So you help them escape that one of your fellow prisoners says, hey, hey, tonight it's happening. And then late at night, the entire back wall turns purple and you hear whispers in your mind. And one of them reaches out and touches the wall. And you see this line of purple energy connect through them to all the other prisoners they're chained with. And you hear whispering in your mind, come join us. Do you touch the wall? And if you touch the wall, you're teleported to see the cultists. And if you don't touch the wall, the next morning the sheriff comes in and says, Oi, what happened? Tell us what happened, and we'll set you free. Either way, the players go free. And either way, whoever they meet with says, Yes, there's this opposing faction. They're corrupt. We're out to stop them. And whether or not it's the cultists telling them that, or the city guard telling them that, it's the same story from different sides. A lot of what you're talking about... And a lot of the examples that you're giving, to me, loop heavily back on experience. And the experience that you've gained since your transition from oppositional to cooperative, right? So if we're talking to someone like me, who's trying to think differently, you know, you the way you were describing the jail cell thing, it bothered me because I wouldn't have thought of that. And, and what I mean by that is you're, you're like, okay, the, the wall turns purple, the thing, the spirits, you know, join us. And if you don't, you know, I'm like, well, if you don't, then you're there the next day and you get tossed into the arena and you have to fight to the death and whatever. It I just don't think in my head right now because I'm not geared for it and I don't have the the story experience that I would have thought that. <clears throat> and I don't know if Andrew was clearing his throat. <laughs> no, I was I was uh reflecting back on an episode we did on role play geeks about a goat boy rogue you'll ha people will have to go check it's a fantastic episode about how you generated this character on the fly and all of us were wanting to play this character that you generated on the fly and the same tools you used to generate that character are the same tools you need to use to generate your plot hooks you choose you have this method where you choose a positive trait and then you balance it with some conflict and then you have this dialectic approach to emerging some kind of uh, new situation out of that conflict and that's your plot that is every plot you want you want to go free well the other alternative is to stay here and how do those things conflict and what might complicate that and you just build on that on the on the fly. I think that the tools you don't have that make it faster at this stage are the building blocks to that. So do you have some canned NPCs that you can put some flavor on? 
I mean, you know, just you've got a personality that you can sort of sort of the jailer. It looks seems to me that uh, I think Craig has mentioned the jailer or the sheriff a few times. I suspect that he's got an archetype that he labels and he reaches into his bag and he pulls out that archetype and he label it gives that archetype a new name and now that's the sheriff of this town or that's the law enforcement in this particular area or this is the head of the watch this is my archetype that I'm going to use for that and then he's got a you know the barkeep or he's got the uh the the person who's running the brothel or who whoever he's got these little archetypes that he will pull out when he needs to build out the plot a little bit it's not a it's not an npc per se it is a model of an npc that he can quickly tweak to fit the situation and he's got that in his toolbox and then he builds the plot on the fly from there so if you need the characters to escape well you need some rogues in jail with them to do that so you'll pull those out you know who who else is going to be there you've got to have some guards maybe you've got a corrupt guard you pull that archetype out and it may not be that the corrupt guard is the archetype it might be you just got a rogue archetype that you're going to put in a guard's uniform or a guard's position in your story and then you just sort of build that out so it's more of a having just some pieces some raw material some primitives that you can use to build out the scene and then you can flesh out the details on the fly. And Steve, you're the best person in the world I've seen <laughs> it doing that. Hmm. I, I don't know anyone else who can build a more complex, deep character in seconds than you. And you just do that very easily. Uh, and you just need to apply that. Think of the plot in the same terms. Hmm. Uh, thank you. And damn. Okay. There's also a bit that you can give them choices, but they can be false choices, actually. As I said, whether you escape or whether you stay in jail, at the end of the day, the next thing that happens is an NPC thanks you for, for joining them and tells you about the evils of the other side. And I don't care which other side that is. And it's also a false choice because it may not be that either of them are evil. They may just see the world differently. It may be that both of them are evil. It may be that there's a third faction manipulating both of them. I don't know yet. It's going to depend on the way the story unfolds, but I have this idea that there are at least two factions, the cultists with the purple wall and the local law enforcement, who actually may have some overlap and just keep going. So, question, Craig. What is your main source of consumption for story? Book, movie, TV, anime, what, what you got? What's your main source? Recently, it's been video games, uh, to a lesser extent, other D&D adventures. D&D adventures when I was a kid, and there is a wealth of information, of pre-written adventures, pre-written modules from the 80s. All the Dragon magazines that I read as a teenager are now available online, and there's a couple hundred hundred installments. I want to say episodes, but that's not right. Right. hundred individual magazines. Many of them have adventures in them. Some of them have races in them or cultures in them. There's a wealth of information that you can get out there. I follow several YouTube channels about D&D. &D. 
there's so much information. The trouble is trying to restrain yourself and try to settle on a few. But again, as a DM, you don't have to know now. And it's very difficult when you're starting and you want to be in control of everything. And to say that person might be a traitor, they might not. Let's find out together. When, I guess, okay. So to go with what Andrew was saying about how I, I look at characters, I think I'm more intimately aware of people and different people and different personalities than maybe I am the stories between them. I, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but I mean, Mark, you know what I'm saying with that? Perfectly. So okay. <laughs> here's the thing, right? So whenever I was young and you had to do something that was some sort of creative writing. I could not construct a story for the life of me. I could write a poem because it's a scene. It's a static scene. You have this picture of something happening and then you can make another poem. But I could not construct a plot for anything. And that actually, I think, was part of the draw of GMing was because what I learned from doing it anyway was that essentially, right, you take one scene, okay, that is something that happens, and then you have another scene that you have. And then all you need once you have the two scenes is some way, some connection for them to get from one point to another point. And you don't even need to say exactly what that is. You just need to provide the opportunity for it to happen because the players move along paths way better than you think. So you don't really need to construct these transition stages. You just have scenes that you want people to experience. And for me, that was what that was a big kind of turning point for me. There's a great quote from Yogi Berra that when you get come to the fork in the road, take it. <laughs> and that's what your players are going to do. When they come to the fork in the road, they're going to take it. And it may not lead in the direction you thought they were going or you wanted them to go. But at the end of the day, as DM, you can say what's at the end of that path. Going back to my example with the key, I don't know where the key is. The key is wherever you looked for it. And if none of you looked at all, a neighbor was going to come up to you asking what you're doing. Oh, you're, you're the wizard's friend. And he was going to give you the key, right? You can have infinite possibilities in your head and wait to see which one gets realized. Or the characters throw you for a loop. And if it's not central to your story, that's why I have the existence roll. Just roll and we'll see where things take us because I don't have it planned. So I will leave it to chance. Whatever path they take on the fork it will lead to your next poem, your next scene, right? So if you just have events planned and you can, these events can be adventures, they can be scenes, whatever. As long as you know that that's going to head to that, then you don't ever need to really construct this quote unquote story. You're just playing things out. And for me, that was a, 
big thing. And that's, once again, I'll go to the five by five method because you're just making these scenes, these poems, and then they're going to find their way to them. You don't ever need to construct this plot exactly. It's not, it's not a plot like you might think of it. You're not writing a book. I don't think I could write a fiction book very easily for that exact reason. That's not nothing to apologize for. Andrew, did you have something? Or are you just inclined towards your giant mic? I, uh, I was thinking, I had a couple things that I was thinking about. One is that in old school D&D adventures, they used to have, you know, there's a 20% chance that the creature is in their lair or there's a, and that was so confusing to me. Why would they do that? I mean, it's, he's either there or he's not. You just, you know, why would you want to roll the die to determine whether that area of the story is going to be told or not? And it didn't occur to me until much later that these are adventures that DMs are running over and over again, sometimes for the same players. Hmm. So that they're running this adventure for a group, and then next year they may run the same adventure, and they may have one or two players that had been there before, and they want to change it up a little bit. And so for your initial run-through just plan on how you kind of want your events to unfold a little bit. And so when the, you know, when they pick, is the door locked? Well, what's going to be interesting at that point? Do you, is, is there, has the rogue been, is it boring for them to pick locks because they've got, you know, a plus 12 to their skill and they've got the, you know, the, there is no lock that they're, it's going to be rare that they're going to have difficulty with a lock, then no, it's not going to be locked. You can buy, you can skip that whole drama of them picking another tedious lock. You can just, you can say that it's locked and they open it and they move through. Uh, is it trapped? Well, you could roll to determine that, or you sh might have a notion, you know, they haven't encountered a trap in a while. Maybe I need to throw a, you know, have them, they've gotten a little lazy and maybe I need to, you know, to, to toss something in there. Um, so, Again, it all comes down to being flexible with what you want. And as a DM, kind of managing the story and making sure you're throwing elements that are keeping the different players involved in that process. Hmm. So while it's true, when you they get to the fork to the fork in the road, it's going to advance to the next scene. I do think that it does affect what we would call maybe the flavor text. To use Craig's example of the cultists or the town, you've got a conflict coming up between two groups you know kind of how this is going to unfold and they're going to fight five or six in this particular setting and they're going to fight over a particular object or a particular piece of information. But if they've gone the purple route and they've allied, allied with the cultists, then the enemies are going to be flavored as the sheriff's men and the object or the information that they're going to want are going to come from the sheriff's side of the story. Um, and if it's the reverse, if they've aligned themselves with the sheriff, then they're going to the, the creatures, the, the combat is going to be flavored as the cultists. It's the exact same encounter. The, piece, the NPCs have the exact same stats. You're not having to switch things up. You know, if there was a, a wizard on the, uh, in, among the cultists and they had a bunch of, don't complicate it. The the watch has a few wizards on their, uh, you know the, in their crew, and that's who you're going to end up battling on the other side. So 
you're just flavoring them, you're dressing them, putting a skin on them, but the underlying elements are exactly the same for the next combat. And I think that's kind of where Craig was going with that. Yeah, so I tend to make it tiers. That first is, it's exactly the same encounter. They're humans in leather armor. Fine. The next is what I consider Andrew to be saying of, well, the flavor is different. So maybe the cultists are all wearing purple robes and the sheriff's men are all wearing civilian garb. Maybe the cultists are a little bit darker spells. Maybe they're using Eldritch Blast instead of Firebolt. The next one down is they're going to have different topics or different, different tactics, different ways of fighting, which you can foreshadow. So rather than cultists and sheriffs, I can say, right, we're having trouble with orcs to the north and goblins to the south. You can say at level one that there's two types of orcs. There's orcs to the north and orcs to the south. And if you go, you'll fight orcs. And whether they're green orcs or gray orcs, doesn't matter. The next step is, but actually, the green orcs and the gray orcs fight differently. The green orcs tend to rage and come at you full force and they fight to the death. The gray orcs tend to be a little bit smarter and will withdraw when they get hurt. They will surrender. They will accept your surrender. They will give mercy. Stats are the same. Tactics are different. The next layer is, to the south, they're no longer orcs. Now they're goblins, and they hit and run. They skirmish. They are not the same tactics because their stats are different. They come in greater numbers. And now the players have a choice to make. Do they go north and face the orcs? Do they go south and face the goblins? Or do they go east and west and skip this entire bloody town? But if they go east and west, they're likely to run into goblins or orcs. <laughs> you can do it that way, or you come against a fight with the goblins and the orcs. And now you've indicated, by the way, the goblins and the orcs don't get along. Or you run into the goblins and the orcs chatting and ch ch trading gold. Or you come into a case where there's a central figure talking to both an orc and a goblin because there's a party behind the throne coordinating these two against the town. Once again, here, here you... You go until the point where you have to make a choice and a decision as a DM that you're going to the signal to the players what's going to happen differently and how different that gets and how much of a choice or a false choice you're giving them is one of these hooks. No, no, here is a moment where what you decide matters. Do you go north, south, east, or west? And something different will happen because I've given you options versus there's orcs everywhere. Do what you like. You guys are making it hard for me to follow the action visually as I'm furiously taking notes on what you guys are saying. So uh, if you see me looking down and scribbling, it's uh, filling up the page. So it's all being recorded. Don't worry. Oh no 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 no! I have to I have to have it I have to have it inked in my own hand for it to really sink in. And you know, I was reflecting on. I think my most rewarding experience of the like two times that I've tried to GM, the most rewarding one was running my world and the story in it with my daughters and uh, my friend Jimmy, the monk player, his two kids and uh, a couple of neighborhood kids. But what you all have been talking about for what to do on the micro level, on the local, small kind of realm with the players. Um, trying to think how to word this right. It's, uh, you've used this word quite a few times, 
Greg choice. Uh, Mark has used the word choice over and over. Andrew's used the word choice over and over. And I guess, you know, for me and, and other people who are wanting to improve their ability to keep people tethered to the game that you're playing is you've really got to be aware of these small moments and the immediate moments of what's going on with the party in the story so that you can be aware of waning interest, um, someone who's dropping out, uh, maybe they don't seem invested in the you know adventure that they're currently on, and then in a very immediate and in some ways very personal way, setting forth these, and, and they're kind of like choice obstacles, Choice-ticles, though I didn't sound right at all. Um, something like that. It, it seems like more than having the knowledge of I've got to be able to know that I can make this connection here to that connection there to this connection over here, and it's ultimately going to have this particular result. Sometimes it's really just about who opens the door, who looks in the window, and who climbs up the gutter. But you give everybody a choice? It's improv, basically. A lot of DMing is improvisational. And that is something you get by doing it. And a lot of it is on the fly. And I think that there's this thing that there's this idea that a lot of new GMs have that they think they need to do all this prep. And the more prep they do and the more they know and all of that, the better their game will be. And in reality, oftentimes it's better if a new GM was to make up something on the fly and then work with that later because – what is much more important to the game and to the players is how you choose to react in that moment. The moments are what makes the game not, not the huge outline, not knowing everybody's name, none of that. Just the moments. Hmm. I completely agree. I think that the moments make the sum of the parts. But you can have the overarching story mm -hmm. be that there's been an infiltration of a fiend and a fiend is pulling the strings behind everything. Now, I haven't said which fiend. I haven't said which strings. I haven't said anything. And if in the course of the campaign, uh, going back to Mark's earlier point that horror is better, well, now suddenly it's not a fiend. It's an apolith. It is something from the great beyond that is darkly influencing events it is not an evil by our definition it is something otherworldly and horrific rather than something cruel the things i remember most aren't whether or not i made the skill check aren't whether or not i made the role aren't whether or not i beat the orcs or the goblins it's which way we went and going back to one of Andrew's earlier points, the consequences that when we decided to go north and face the orcs, 
what happened with the goblins to the south? Did they overrun things? Should we have gone that way? As GM, you have the ability to say whatever happened that you like. So trying to plan everything beforehand is nigh impossible due to the number of ways that your players will misinterpret things. Don't worry about it and fix it later. So to use a, seems to be odd to be using a real world analogy or a real world metaphor for a fictional story, but you wouldn't see someone that you found attractive and ask them out and have your entire relationship mapped out before you asked them to go have dinner. You, I mean, you wouldn't have, well, we're going we're gonna to date for two years. We're going to be engaged for three. We're going to get married. On our second year, we're going to have two kids. And then uh, we're going to be together for six years. And then I'm going to leave you for someone else when the kids are in first grade. And, you know, it's, you don't have that mapped out as part of your life. You have this general notion, I want to go out with you. You're attractive. We have a lot in common. At some point, I may want to make things more serious. At some point, I may want to have children. I know that all that stuff in the back of my head. That's all possible. But it would be foolish to try to map that out at the first date. I need to have this notion of where the story is going to go. I mean, if, if I don't think that we're, we have anything in common, there's nothing for us to talk about, I don't find you attractive or you don't find me attractive, then I don't want to waste time with the first date. So the, the long-term plans are important in that if I don't see it heading in that direction, I don't want to do it. But I don't need to know them specifically down to, I don't have to have them scheduled. They just have to be out there. And it might be that, you know, a couple months into the relationship, we decide, you know, we don't want to get married. We just want to, to live together for a while. And maybe we thought we were going to have three or four kids, but, you know, things are going well without them. Let's not do that. And so the story changes, the plot gets modified as we end up building more of a foundation. And the same thing is true when you're developing a adventure. You've got this general outline, you've got the general conflicts of the world, you've got the general overarching story points, the, the factions, if you will, that are competing against. You know how the, all that sort of fits together as a DM in your own head. But having it all spelled out on how that's going to all unfold, that's not necessary. Um, you just start and then let it sort of work its way through the world. You're going from Miami to Seattle. You know some of the stops along the way. The rest is improv. That's a great, those are great analogies. And what I really liked about yours, Andrew, is that it is not solely your decision there are other people involved in charting this course. And as you were saying, Mark, that there are multiple stops along the way, and there may be some discussions about where to stop or how to get there. It's the same in D&D. If, if you want plot hooks, yes, I can give you some ideas I've done along the time, but listen to your players. What are they talking about? Are there any NPCs whose names keep coming up? You've gone to this wizard's house for dinner. Five, five sessions later, does his name come up? Whenever they have some task where they need some magical spell cast, remind them, hey, you went to dinner with this guy. Listen to what they're saying. Talk to them out of game. Are you enjoying this? What, 
What NPCs matter the most to you right now? You can threaten them. You can ha- you can threaten the NPCs they care about. You can have the NPCs they care about show up in the next town and say, "Hey guys, good to see you again." You can be dark with it. You can be light with it. You can be humorous with it. You can he can sprinkle that third herb that gives you gas on all of your dinners. There are so many ways to incorporate elements the players like and the players want to see, but you need to know what they are. So listen to them and talk to them. Similar to if you're starting to get serious or less serious with a romantic interest, having those conversations may be difficult, but they are necessary and they will yield better outcomes in the end. Are those good closing remarks? That's what I, I was I was like. Mark's inclining towards the mic when I'm sitting here going, I think that's it. I think that's our closing moment. <laughs> Unless, Andrew, you got anything to – I mean, you know. No. No, I'm I mean, good. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm good. I was like, that was – all right. Stop your recording, gentlemen. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Game Mastery. You can always check us out on anchor.fm slash game dash mastery or follow us on Twitter at mastery underscore game, Instagram at Game Mastery Podcast, or Facebook and YouTube at Game Mastery. If you'd like to ask us a question or get some follow-up information, maybe submit a topic for the show, please email us at rpg.gamemastery at gmail.com. And we'll be back next week for more information to make your games better and to make you a better Game Master.